Welcome to the Ecobot Podcast, where we dive into what matters most for 21st century wetland scientists. Throughout this series, we'll touch on the increasingly important role that technology plays in wetland science. I'm Jeremy Shavey, and on today's episode, we'll be continuing our conversation about GNSS receivers and field applications with a great Q&A session with our panelists and presenters. In the 21st century, I believe it is our responsibility as scientists to ascend biological data into the digital forum for the purposes of policy, planning, and conservation around at-risk or sensitive natural communities such as wetlands. As scientists, we are each in our own way through ascending biological data giving a voice to something that oftentimes has no voice in human legal structures. And this digital voice is critical in the 21st century for it is helping to shape our world now and for generations yet to come. We have a lot of great questions for the panel, so without further ado, let's jump in. So there was there was a question that I actually had already been submitted via email a few weeks back in respect to this webinar, and that is, you know, what software do you use to collect the data point with multiple attributes? How does that work, or can a data dictionary be set up? So I thought maybe I would throw that over to you first, Scott, and then maybe uh, get some feedback from you, Olivia. Yes, I mean, you can build a data dictionary. We were able to set up pretty much anything that we want in Collector. So for example, just yesterday, I was out on a site and before I went out, I was telling our GS guy, I'm like, you know, our standard delineation features, but I also need to add inside that, I need to be able to say that they called it this, and then I'm going to call it this. So they called it a PFO before, but I'm going to disagree and I'm going to make it this. So we're building all this stuff onto it. And it also has project number. It has our soil information. So you can build almost a catalog or a small sheet for yourself just in one point. And as uh, Olivia had mentioned, you can take your photos and then attach it right to that point. And that, that makes a big difference then too, because then when you take that data output, it actually is named, then your photos are named to your point. And that makes it a lot easier for doing photo logs or anything else that you need at the end, or if you need to get photos out really quick without having to go back through and rename and do everything else. So you can build these attributes in there and then pull them open. And then when they come back out in a KMZ, you can actually have all the information that you took. So similar to stream data, you could have ordinary high water, top of bank measurements, things like that all put in there and then spit out just in one point. So it works really well. Great. Olivia, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, similarly, we have a standard set up for wetland and stream delineations. We also have a standard for um, T&E surveys. So when I have someone set up a collector project for me, I just say, hey, we're doing wetland surveys and we're doing T&E or one or the other. And then we've kind of got a base model that is, is available for everything. And then some, I will also special request certain things like for an example, a survey I just did last week, we surveyed haul routes as part of our overall survey. So we looked at, we needed to know road type improvement, if improvements were needed, if wetlands were present, the width of that. So I had our GIS specialists put those all in as fields. And then 
when we get our output, it's nice when you export as a KMZ or as a shapefile, you can symbolize it differently. So I can symbolize specifically gravel roads that need improvements or any any variation of that. So it really maximizes your data and makes it very visual and easy to understand. Great, thanks. So another question that came in is, what is the learning curve for implementing these new Bluetooth receivers? And so why don't we jump up to Caitlin, since you say you're hanging out by yourself in the wetlands up there in Chicagoland. So I started off using the Trimble, I forget what it's called, like the giant yellow Trimble that's kind of heavy to carry around. And I thought that that was much less user-friendly. I had no idea what to do with that thing. You know, using the app is is much more user-friendly and then pairing it with the receiver is pretty is pretty easy i like some other panelists said i talked to our gis guy and you know he walked me through the process of getting connected and i would say the first couple times in the field it, it can be touch and go so it is good to go practice in your backyard or go practice at the office before you actually take it out into the field and then realize you can't connect but yeah it's it's really easy to get the hang of once you get going. I haven't had a problem with it at all. Great. Well, so maybe from the other side, Kyle, you know, with you guys having such a big organization, how are you guys finding people are able to roll with that learning curve for the new hardware? Yeah. I mean, I, w- <laughs> I would say, you know, when I, when I first got, started using the in 360 camera and, you know, different devices all paired to a phone or tablet or whatnot, I think the initial setup and, the first time you do stuff, it shouldn't be uh, when you're out in the field trying to um, trying to collect data or trying to you know accomplish something for that day. I found that kind of you know ironing out that process beforehand saves uh, a lot of frustration and just you know practice before you actually go out there. Mm-hmm. All right. So you know one of the questions that frequently people ask is how do you confirm the accuracy of the GPS data that's coming in through the receiver and Livia, well, you and I had talked about that a little bit. Do you have any feedback from your side on that? We've tested the accuracy before. I know like our, our GIS specialists have tested the accuracy prior to commissioning a new device, I should say. And so I, I kind of leave a lot of that up to them. But the, the accuracy will display on, on my device. And so I can always check where it's at at that time specifically when I'm when I'm out in the field. And then similar, I think Scott was mentioning, you can set your accuracy to prevent from a prevent you from collecting data unless you have a certain amount of accuracy. But the QAQC of the accuracy of the device we typically do beforehand, I think, with the with the GIS specialists. Great. Well thanks for rolling with me, setting you up there. So what I'd what I'd love to do is is jump over more on the hardwire side of things. Um, I'm thinking of York and Jean-Yves here. So what, you know, what are some of the available sources for differential corrections you know, in terms of making sure that what we're looking at out in the field is more accurate and what level of accuracy can we expect from that? So why don't we, why don't we start with you, Jean-Yves, and then we'll, then we'll jump over to York. Yeah, uh, thank you, Jeremy. One thing that's important based on what Olivia says, uh, for example, what is the accuracy of the device? There are many things that affect the accuracy. The first one is that you have to understand that we're talking now about high accuracy GNSS. Now, when I talk about a consumer grade, we're talking about something that will give us at least submeter receivers with any of the devices that we've seen today, either a submeter or in the case, for example, of Scott, he had the 200 and the gold that we can go down to one centimeter. This is one thing that we have to be careful of is what the receiver reports. The receiver reports an estimated accuracy. 
okay, it can be good. Under ideal conditions, it will be good. And as uh, Scott mentioned also, when he goes on the canopy, this estimate accuracy starts getting bigger. So it's a good indication for us of more or less what is my accuracy. But it's not the absolute truth. You know, you can be doing, for example, one centimeter accuracy and the receiver will provide you an estimate. You might be plus or minus, let's say, one or two centimeters off with that. Or if the case of submitter mentioned, for example, seven inch she was getting, that's a good indication that we're getting good data, but it might be plus or minus all the way up to two feet accuracy. So you have to be careful with that. The second thing that affects the accuracy is, am I using differential correction? Because GPS alone, if you don't have any source to correct all the errors that you get from satellites basically going through the atmosphere, the ionosphere, you will get what they call absolute positioning, which is usually between one, two, three, or four meters. So you need some way to make your accuracy better by using a source of differential correction. There are multiple sources of differential correction. One of them is, for example, SBAS, which I think that most this is what most people use. I don't know, in the case of the R1, it was connected to the Trimble network. York probably will answer that question. But WAS is a good source of differential correction. It comes directly from satellites and provide corrections to correct those errors that we get from the ionosphere when we receive the signal. That's very important. That's what differentiates high accuracy receivers from consumer grade receivers. That's why you cannot get that type of accuracy with the, the embedded receiver on your iPhone or iPad or Samsung or whatever it is. So the source of the differential correction is important also, and that's what makes it better. If you're connected to an RTK network, for example, a dual for multi-frequency receiver, you go down to one centimeter. And the third thing that affects your accuracy is, as we saw again on Scott, he was doing his profile. So you make sure that the coordinates that are output by the receiver are in a proper datum. We most likely very often overlook the datum concept. This is what's... For example, in collector, there's this datum shift. If I'm using, for example, was, then my datum will be in, for example, ITRF. And I, you know, it's almost the same thing as Web Mercator. But if I'm connected to an RTK network in the US, I'll be getting data in 983, 2011. And I need to convert that coordinate into a Web Mercator. So in two different data, the same point will give you two different coordinates. So you make sure that these are reconciled because sometimes you'll be looking at your map, why are all my points offset by, let's say, six feet to the northwest? That's called a datum shift issue. So this is, when you're doing high accuracy, those important points come into effect. The source of differential correction and mainly my datum. Am I okay with my datum and what source of differential correction I'm, I'm using? So yeah, there are on-the-fly datum transformation tools available to counter that. But also, last thing, very important, make sure, for example, in collector, those, you know, use collector, Define your GLSS metadata in there. It's good to take a point today, but five years down the line, I'm looking at my point. What was it collected with? What was my estimate accuracy? How many satellites was I tracking? Was I in differential correction or not? Was I in RTK mode or not? So you have a pedigree of that point. So it's always important when you do your survey in the field to always collect the, the metadata. That means all the information around the quality of the point, if you want in order to have a record of the validity of the points that you've taken in the field. Great, thank you. York. I'm not sure I have a whole lot to add. Those are great concepts that Johnny's uh, presented to us to kind of consider when you're looking at accuracy. You know, from uh, real-time corrections, I think that was one of your questions, you know, the, the WAS system or SBAS. So we use the term SBAS to create a global for satellite-based augmentation. Here in the U.S., we call it WAS, 
wide area augmentation system. It's managed by the FAA and it's a code phase only correction. So that that's important depending on what type of your receiver you're using and what type of accuracy you can expect. So generally, you know, a half a meter to a meter is the best that the SBAS system can provide because it's code only. And then we switch over to the local systems, like Johnny was mentioning, your local VRS networks, and that's where you get the code and carrier corrections so you can get down to those tighter accuracies. And then different manufacturers also have global correction networks as well. I've forgotten what the name is for the ES1, but the Trimble one is called RTX, but several manufacturers have those kind of global correction services now, which uh, support code and carrier. So I, I think I would highlight just the consciousness that you need to have of what coordinate system your target is. I agree completely about having your metadata stored inside of a collector or whatever application is you're, you're using to know what the coordinate system is that you've collected in. But even starting out, as you're building your project, knowing what coordinate system your target is so you get things set up correctly. Um, I've seen plenty of times where in collector, in the profile uh, there, in the location profile, it's not been set correctly. That's gonna cause you problems on the back end, especially if you're concerned about elevations, need to accommodate. You know, One of the things that people don't recognize is that GPS, all GPS receivers, calculate a height above ellipsoid, so an ellipsoid height, whereas most people want an elevation in an orthometric or a mean sea level. So you need to make certain that you make accommodations for that in the software uh, to get that true mean sea level type elevation that you want. Great, thank you. Mark. If I can add one thing to what York said uh, about sure. the elevation, also one thing to, to mention is that usually elevation is from zero to about two times worse, the horizontal accuracy. So always expect the elevation to be less accurate, more or less to that factor when you're comparing to, the, to your horizontal. So, and sometimes if you want to do very accurate elevation, like you want to really have the slope, like Scott was saying, I know he hates that, but you must use the range pull. If you want to get down to one centimeter, it's important to use the range pull and measure the height of your range pull. You can enter that in collector and then get your elevation at the ground. And then that's what I have to add to what York said. Great, thanks. So, so let's piggyback off that. So I, I'm interested. How how is you know we got to hear from Kyle. So maybe maybe we'll we'll jump over you on this one, Kyle. But everybody else, like, how are you carrying your receiver on the field? Well, Scott, you did it. You told us too. You Kyle duct tapes his to a pole, and you've got like some special rack that you put yours on. We started with doing the pole at like pretty much all times, and for our bat surveys and bird surveys and things like that, where we could take the pole and put it down and pull in the data it it seemed to work works really well and if we're doing more like agricultural lands and stuff like that I mean, we'll definitely bring the pole along and and do it that way it was when we were getting into the real mountainous areas where like we couldn't carry the pole we did do the the backpack version where the pole kind of stuck out the top and after a couple of times of me getting clipped by some branches and yanking me backwards, I decided, I was like, we got to figure something out. So we worked, we actually uh, had our GIS guy come all the way down to West Virginia. I went down into a deep valley and I said, we got to work something out where the puck still, you know, can see. And, and it seemed to be as we basically just kind of taped it or we started getting the Velcro and the heavy duty Velcro and Velcroing it right down. That way you could run the wiring down into your backpack so you can move around the whole time, still use your hands. I said, but we got to make sure that like we're still getting the accuracy. And when we were doing stream stuff, 
you know, those were ones where, you know, based on uh, Johnny was saying with the elevations and things, that's unfortunately, those are times when you need to get things down into centimeters that you're going to have to use something like that. And you're just going to have to stick it out and stand there and wait for a little bit and hope that it starts to eat in. But yeah, we've been doing really well, just kind of putting it on our backpacks and roaming around. Some people put it in like a little thing on their hat and, you know, sometimes and it's worked as long as it's flat and it sees the sky, it seems to work really well. Great. Thanks, Scott. How about you, Caitlin? What are you doing? Yeah, mine is similar to what Scott's been doing. And I, again, I just have the R1 receiver. It's got a little clip on it and I should probably figure out something better, but I just clip it on my backpack strap and I'm not climbing any mountains or anything, but it's when you get into the stream banks with a lot of buckthorn, I do find myself, you know, only my body can fit into those areas. So like any poles or anything additional is not going to go through or it's just going to get snagged. So I do find that clipping it on there is the way to go. It has fallen off before, so I recommend like really securing it somehow. You'll you'll know if it's gone because your you know your accuracy starts to go out the window. <laughs> or or your GPS points just never change. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We're all in the same spot. I can't figure it out. <laughs> Olivia, what are you doing? Yeah, I have my backpack here actually handy. So we have a little pole inside the the pack, and this is one of the taller poles so it sticks out maybe eight inches above the backpack and definitely I've gotten caught on a lot of branches and snapped back and or the we have this velcro on top so this has fallen off before I've gotten tangled in the wire but I feel like it helps more than it hurts but yeah keeping my hands free is definitely a big thing we have had a case where someone had tied like high vis around the pole and it ended up going on top of the receiver and we couldn't figure out why like something wasn't collecting and it was because the high vis was over over the receiver so it is easy to uh, accidentally cover it up so I try and keep nothing near the pole or on the pole or anything like that and then tuck as much of the um, cable into the backpack as possible so it's not getting caught on things but I have to carry my backpack anyways for water and snacks and whatever else my Munsell and all the other things I need to delineate so I'm just having everything in here is pretty handy. Great. Well, so the only thing I would add is when I'm when I'm out in the field using it, I uh, typically clip it onto my my shoulder pack as well as, as similar to Caitlin. But one of the things that I found works a few years ago, I started off with way out in the field under heavy tree canopy. I put my GPS on like my machete to like try to augment the amount of metal to try to amp it up. I don't know if it really worked or not, but what I did find out was that when I put my Viking helmet on with the horns and I stick it to that, that, that I get way better accuracy with that. But so get a Viking helmet. That'll help you out a lot. Let's talk about time. How's the battery life on your unit? How are you finding that, that it's working? I've, we heard a little bit from a couple of you, but Kyle, how, how are you guys finding the battery life of the R1 when you guys are out in the field? It tends to last, you know, more than a day. I think if we're, uh, if it's really struggling to find satellites, I, I think it, doesn't last as long but you know if you're out there for a day or even multiple days really you know you can charge it at night myself I mean I, I find that it goes for a couple or a few days at a time I mean I'm not necessarily using it like all day long you know I'll turn it off during you know lunch or whenever but I also carry uh, just kind of a small laptop charging battery with me just you know if it if anything does get low or dies I can plug it in in the backpack and it's you know still good to go usually my phone is the first thing to die out of any of the things that i'm using in the field <laughs> all right great 
And Liv, how about you with, with the SX Blue? How are you finding the battery life on that? Battery life is great on the SX Blue. I had, a, when I was being trained, a senior delineator told me that if the GPS is dying, you've probably been in the field too long. Like you probably need to <laughs> call it a day and go home. And so by the end of a long, hot day, usually I'm at the last um, rung. So it, it lasts for a full day. And then I charge everything every night because that's like the worst. I, I will say, I didn't mention this when I was talking about my case study, but in most of the areas that I'm working in, I have absolutely no self-service, no reception. And so I use this for navigation, like to and from the hotel that I'm staying in on top of navigating around the project site. So if I don't have the GPS unit, I feel very lost on my project for sure. So I never want that to die. But we have a car charger that we use as well. If over lunch, if we're out in a remote area and and are running low on battery, we'll charge up over lunch. But typically it'll last a full day. And so if you just charge it overnight, then you're good to go. Great. It was not until I started doing these webinars and hearing the short days that you all work that I realized that I was working. So. I, I always test everything because we were doing like 14 to 16 hour days when we were doing a lot of field work with Kentucky Division of Water back in the day. And so I always have people telling me like, wait, that's almost two days, two days worth of work. And I'm like, yeah, we get it done and we made more in the day. But anyway, we'll, we'll jump over from that. So Scott with the US Era, how are you guys doing with, with that, that charge unit? We've been really good for the 100 and 200 units, we've been able to go through, you know, 10, 12 hour day. The gold units, we do find that are closer to more like eight hours because of how often it seems like it's pinging the satellites. So it's really drawing in a lot more. We've been bringing just an extra spare battery out with us and trying to charge it. But the other units, we've definitely been able to go through at least a 12, 12 hour day or more. And similar to Kayla and Olivia, like, you know, after 12 hours, I mean, probably shouldn't be out there anymore. Anyway, I'm not even sure if I can see what's on the ground anymore at that point to be able to identify <laughs> anything. But yeah, just the new ones, the, the goals have definitely given us like stronger accuracy. They just seem to be maybe about an hour or two less than the other units, but we've been very happy with it, which is good because I don't want to have to swap out batteries and do all that and, or go back and have to charge something. You know, our iPads die faster than the, the GPS units do, so... That's been our probably our biggest hurdle is the the iPads. That's, yeah, I never leave without like a power pack for my phone. I have like a power pack that has multiple USB ports. So I'll plug my phone or the iPad in at once. So we've got wires going all over the place usually. But definitely the iOS devices die a lot faster than the Windows tablet. I know someone asked me about the tablet. That's another big difference is the Windows tablets have a longer battery life. Okay, great. Yeah, so we get good life. Sounds like other people are having similar experiences. The hardware or that we're actually receiving the data into the, the tablets or the phones are oftentimes the things that actually need more of the charge because we're doing more work with that. And just a note to Jean-Yves and, and, and York, that what everybody's requ- requesting here is that you make the charge last eight hours so they have shorter days. I think that's the note to take home for you guys. <laughs> well, there's a trade-off there, I mean, between what you can carry on the field. Of course, you're going with all your backpack and lunch and beer and everything in the field. <laughs> and you don't want the receiver to be waiting a lot. So it's 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 a factor, you know, like when you have that mountain on the pole also, and it's a carbon fiber ramp, you want things to be as light as possible. So you're looking at, for example, in the case of the, the arrow gold, it lasts about eight hours in the field. That's normal because 
you're not just doing one frequency, you're doing multiple frequencies on four constellations. You have a lot of channels for the same battery that's used on the 100, which has many less channels. They still do four constellations, but less signals it's using. So of course the goal will consume more, you know, more power, but I think a full day of work, as you said, after eight o'clock, eight hours, it's time to go back home and relax. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's, why, that's why the difference is between the power consumption of all those devices, it's what they're able to, to use in the field, how many channels are open to track signals from the various satellites. That's what makes Great. the difference. Thanks. York? Yes. I think one question that came in was about the, the R1 and the battery life. It can be monitored. So GNSS status will give you a, a level of what the battery reading is to so that app. And we also have a newer Trimble Mobile Manager app, which lets you do coordinate system control, but it also will give you battery level reading as well. You know, it is, I think part of the question was, can you only look at the device itself? So on the device, there are lights. And when you go down to an amber color light, that means the battery level is starting to get a little bit low. But again, on the GNSS status app, you can see battery level. Great, thank you. So our last question before we fold up here is in respect to utilizing these GNSS receivers under heavy tree cover. So again, first I'd like to hear from consultants and then we'll, we'll wrap up and hear from York and. Jean-Yves. So, Caitlin, we didn't get to have you jump in on the last one. So, I think they've got some trees up where you are. So, let's. what experience have you had? Yeah, we have some trees. It is a little bit harder under tree cover. It takes a little bit longer to get the accuracy. But, you know, that could probably be that could probably be addressed if I had a pole like some of the other um, consultants have or something else to kind of boost my accuracy because I am just using it on my backpack or sometimes I'm holding it up over my head to try and get that accuracy but you know for the most part it's work you know I can get it within several feet which I think is is pretty good you know we had mentioned like plus or minus two feet that some people have been getting so but it is it's always going to be a little bit harder to get accuracy under tree canopy okay Scott how about you guys what what do you what are you guys finding yeah, it's definitely, like Caitlin mentioned, it's it's going to be a little bit slower. So a lot of times, you know, especially if we're like an open right away or something like that, it's we're able to collect things so quickly. And then we get down there and then all of a sudden, especially a lot of new guys that are, you know, so used to moving really quick, all of a sudden I'm like, you know, you need to stand there for a second and let it like try to gather or if possible, you know, if you can, you know, take a lean forward or a lean back just to catch the gap in the trees, you know, you can see like I got a tree gap and I, you know, way down in this valley, all of a sudden I have three foot of accuracy, but I move a foot to the left underneath the tree and now I'm at six feet of accuracy. But it's definitely, that's when a pole does come in more handy when you're down there. It's, if you need to take very specific, strong, accurate things, that's good. For a lot of times when you're just kind of bringing in a stream or a, a boundary edge, you're usually getting that couple of feet either way, like Caitlin mentioned, and that's that's okay for what you know what what your purpose is. But it definitely takes a little bit longer if you're going to be stuck under a stronger canopy. You know, you just need to be patient, take your time, and realize that like it'll drop over time. It just needs some chance to catch these satellites and find out where you're at. Great, Liv. Anything you want to add? Yeah. The, so I've worked on a couple of projects in Pennsylvania state forests, and so that definitely has heavy heavy tree cover it's pretty dense and our accuracy does drop and 
drop or raise, I don't know what you'd use in that term, but more feet, so it's not quite as accurate. But we definitely have to do a little bit more corrective data management when we get back from the field. So a lot of times you can get pretty accurate with the GPS units. And then for that specific state, Pennsylvania has a really great resource for LIDAR data. And so um, I compare with contours a lot too, and, and just kind of check a lot of the data as I'm going and, and kind of verify from a spatial standpoint that makes sense like yes a wetland is here and it's not no it's not on a ridge line like even though there are um, a lot of hill slopes seeps in in the Pennsylvania mountains but uh, but just kind of recognizing that that's a time that you need to spend a little bit more time when you get back in the office verifying that that data if you're getting a little bit worse of an accuracy but overall I haven't had many situations where it just like will not collect any data like it's it's usually it's definitely getting below 10 feet usually but sometimes you just got to take a little extra time at the end. Great. Thanks, Luke. So yeah, I'd love to hear from hear from York, you know, different ways that you guys are thinking about addressing and helping out with that in the future. And then we'll then we'll go to Sean Eve. Sure. I think, you know, working under canopy is always a challenge based on the wide open. And you know, so Trimble's done different things for what we call multipath rejection. So looking about you know, concerned about satellite signals bouncing and how do you calculate those out. So there's some different technologies that are built to do that. One of the things we recommend is when folks can, you know, stay in the open as much as possible. And then when you have a point that's under canopy, move from the open area. Once you grab the position, then come back out to an open area. Sometimes that can help the receiver stabilize a little bit as well. This has been the challenge since the early days of GPS, you know, forestry. Yeah. And this is and different manufacturers, you'll have 20 different manufacturers, 20 different products that will each behave differently on a canopy. It's how well you tune the receiver to perform. And also what is greatly helping, because when you're on the canopy, you're not tracking satellites directly. You're just a lot of time just getting signals that have bounced. And as York said, how do you detect this? You know, And the accuracy varies because of that. Now, there's many things that come into effect on the quality of the receiver of handling signals on the canopy. You know, you got this receiver sensitivity, but you have to find a balance between the sensitivity of tracking bounce signals and which one are good and which one are no good. And having multiple constellations, for example, four constellations, you're getting all those satellites that you mentioned at the beginning of the presentation, Jeremy, that greatly helps. You get more satellites that you're able to reject in your overall computation at the end. The other point is also keeping a differential correction on the canopy. Uh, we're using, for example, WAS signals. And are you able to maintain these WAS signals and provide, keep on providing a differential correction also on the canopy? So different manufacturers will put emphasis on algorithms inside the receivers to make better use of this so you can have a full day of DGPS work on the canopy. Don't expect the accuracy to be always submitted on a canopy. You know, depending on the receiver, I can talk only for the hour receivers, but sometimes you should expect probably between close, I, I cannot say submitter, I don't want to say submitter either, even though you'll get submitter sometimes in real life, but also expect, for example, a few more feet of inaccuracy also depending on the type of canopy. It depends on the diameter of the trunks. We've been doing testing since 1994, for example, for the for with the Forest Engineering Research Institute of Canada, where in this winter time, all of us in deciduous tree environment, no leaves, you could see the sky, nobody could track. At that time it was only GPS. The reason is because the diameter of the trunks were so big, even if you could see the sky, signals was being bounced up and too much multipath, if you want, as York mentioned, signal bouncing off trunks, preventing that. So 
diameter of the chunks is a bit effect, and the other one is a canopy cover. What type of canopy? Is it deciduous? Is it are the leaves wet or dry? Spruce, for example, you'll find even if it's very pitch dark underneath, you might get better response on the spruce. So again, it's a lot of things vary, but inaccuracies there, of course. So how do you maximize that? I mean, go there, stay probably a few seconds, and then make sure that you work slower, as Scott mentioned. Don't walk like a torpedo on the canopy. Just walk slower because signal is obstructed. And then make sure you watch that estimate accuracy also as you go along. Very important. All the other features also, when you really, really want the down to the really high accuracy, there's also the option of using laser range finders also to measure offset points and do some sort of traverse on the canopy and copying GPS and laser offset measurements also on the canopy. But overall, accuracy can be good on the canopy. It's just that you have to be careful. Not, don't expect submeter. Uh, especially don't try to use different shock correction from local networks, including the carrier phase measurements on the canopy because that's you're measuring wavelengths of signal from the 20,000 kilometers all the way up to the antenna. They get obstructed and you get you cannot make measurements with that. So it's very complex. I don't want to go into detail, but you have code differential and a carrier phase, as York mentioned earlier also. And carrier phases can be very touchy to use on the canopy. So try to use a code differential source like SBAS on the canopy. Thank you for listening to the Ecobot podcast. On the next episode, we'll highlight some of the leading women in wetland science and technology. If you like what you heard, take a moment to rate, review, and follow along on any podcast app, including the one you're using right now. If you'd like to learn more about how Ecobot is helping transform the industry and to see what we can do to help your company by scheduling a demo, you can find us on LinkedIn or visit ecobotapp.com. I'm Jeremy Shavey, and I will see you next time on the Ecobot Podcast.